We haven't lived up to our founding ideal. We never did. It is the week of June 15th, and welcome to episode 29 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We have a first-time guest today, Harry Wingo, NSI visiting fellow, faculty member at the College of Information and Cyberspace at the National Defense University, and former Navy SEAL, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The public murder last month of George Floyd in Minneapolis by a police officer has impacted all of us. Last week, NSI put out a statement on the issues of race, policing, and equal treatment under the law that are currently being debated in our homes and on the streets, headlines, and television chirons of America. Today, we're going to discuss just a few of the ways this debate impacts the foreign policy issues facing our country, as well as the community of individuals who work on national security matters. Let's start with a discussion of the national security policy community and how it is handling itself. Jamil, will you start us off by talking about the statement itself? How did it come about, and can you describe some of your thinking behind it? When the idea of doing a statement first came up, I was not interested. It came to me by way of one of our visiting fellows, Harold Moss, who uh, texted me and said, hey, you know, is NSI going to say something on this topic? And I texted him back and said, I don't think so. It's not really in our wheelhouse. You know, we do national security. This is clearly a problem, clearly an issue the country needs to deal with, but it's an issue of domestic security, domestic policy, not really a topic for NSI to get into. And Harold said, well, I don't agree. There are a lot of international issues related to this. Uh, Obviously, the role that Russia and China are playing, gaslighting some of the issues associated with uh, this topic. But really, it's about our standing in the world. It's about how we treat our own people, about how we treat other people around the world, and whether we really are the country that presumes to lead the world and purports to be Uh, an international leader when it comes to issues of freedom and equality and the like. So I took that seriously and I asked Harold if we might have a call. We chatted on the phone for a little bit. He then asked if we could get a group of folks together. So we got a group of folks together, including Harry. And even going into that conversation, I was still skeptical about the necessity or the value of NSI weighing in on the issue. And over the course of the conversation, I came around to the point of view that there was potentially something important to be said here. I didn't know how much should be said or whether it should just be focused on the international issue. I thought it would be kind of be tone deaf if you just focused on the Russia-China angle, which is just a small piece, an important but a small piece of what was going on here, obviously with the huge issues in the country of institutionalized racism, discrimination against minorities in this country, and really the failure of our ability to live up to our founding ideals, providing equality of opportunity to all and treating all humans as being equal in the eyes of God and the eyes of our nation under the law. So I agreed to sort of draft something and I put it off till the next morning and about 4 a.m. I sat down to draft uh, the statement. And as I started to write less, the words just flowed out. I couldn't stop writing. And as I wrote, I got more and more angry um, and more and more frustrated the situation we face in this country. And so I just sort of threw all my thoughts on the paper. And then I ran it past the group with Harry and Harold and other folks. I got some great insights and thoughts on what I'd written. By and large, it, it changed at the margins, but didn't change too much in the substance. Ended up being a very lengthy, almost two full Microsoft Word pages of statement. But I think it said the things that we needed to say, that we haven't lived up to our founding ideal, we never did, that it does matter to our national security and to our own sort of view of ourselves in the world, how we handle this issue at home, and our complete failure uh, to recognize our own failure in this area, our failure of having failed repeatedly and not addressed it sufficiently um, is something we now need to tackle. And I committed 
NSI uh, to doing more on this issue, specifically tackling the Russia-China issue, specifically tackling the issue of diversity in the national security community, and then partnering with other organizations to really address the root causes at the heart of this problem, police brutality, unequal treatment of minorities uh, in this country, particularly black Americans, and also uh, the educational inequality that creates that inequality of opportunity we have in this country that is a fundamental failure of our nation today. You know, Jamil, I found it to be a very powerful statement, and I thought a very good one. I note here at the end, you say, most importantly, we shall not squander the sacrifices of the men and women who have died to preserve our freedom and advance the cause of justice. We must act now. It's a terrific statement, and it confirms my view that you do your best work between two o'clock and five o'clock in the morning. That was true when we worked on the Hill together. It's true now. Harry, you've played a number of different roles in the national security community over the years. You were part of the conversation with Jamil. What's your overall take on the moment our nation is grappling with and how our community is handling it? Yeah, thanks, Les. I'd say overall, this is definitely a challenging time. And I want to say that statement that was put out, General, great job on that. Was happy to help. What we're doing is we're dealing with this individually as members of the national security community and then collectively. And we also have to remember that the national security community covers not just those who are in the government. I happen to be a DOD civilian. I'm not speaking on behalf of uh, the DOD today. Uh, But we have to also remember it represents those folks in the private sector who contribute to the tools and our national power. So I would say this is definitely a whole of nation challenge. It is an individual tragedy, of course, for uh, Mr. Floyd, who lost his life, his family, his friends. But what for me is inspiring about this response is, yes, it opens up a fault line that goes back to the founding of the republic. There's a phrase we've all heard within the national security community. Yes, we're the greatest nation. We think so, but we have many partners. Uh, But we were born with the birth defect, and that had to do with slavery, owning other human beings. I'm African-American, and I know that goes back quite a ways. But I think that what's happening is the community is responding by looking at how do we move forward. And there are lots of aspects on this. But I think that in the time that we are now facing, for example, China as a very powerful peer competitor at a time where some say we're starting another Cold War, we have to have that unity. As Jamal said in his statement, I love the headline on that statement, a house divided, a reference, uh, powerful words. President Lincoln, when we went through upheaval at the origins, I think the second founding of our nation, and it did have to do with the scourge of white supremacy, a leftover that we've moved beyond. And so for the national security community, an example of the highest level of of a statement, General Milley, God bless him for saying that we needed more leaders who are African-American, who are Latino or Asian-American, more women. We need more diversity and we have to do so. And so I would say that we are collectively trying to look at what are some of the causes? How do we get to the root causes? And I would end right here by saying, you know, in this initial question, it deals with all elements of our national power. Yes, one of the basic things we can do is stop killing black men. (laughs) You know, under these circumstances, it was horrifying to watch eight minutes and 46 seconds of a man being killed. It doesn't matter if he wasn't a saint. It doesn't matter what he had done. Nobody, you know, in the words of, I used to watch Batman as a kid and Batman said to Robin, no man is above the law, but no man is beneath it either. But economics. We need more African-Americans who own the companies that contribute to the national security enterprise, whether it's artificial intelligence companies. I'm, I'm really researching what drones can do across the board, definitely. In addition to the military element power, in addition to information, you know, how we deal with 
our adversaries are using this to their advantage, saying, look, America doesn't have such a great story. We have to address that. And on diplomacy, let's not forget our friends, even our closest, the five eyes, how inspiring that you would have demonstrations in the UK, but our partners have the same issues of their own. And so I would say, rounding up less on that initial question, thank you for it, is that we collectively have the opportunity to tell the story not only of America or of our Five Eye partners or NATO, but really of free men and women around the world who respect individual liberty and the dignity of every human being. And that is our superpower against authoritarian governments who have a different story to tell. I think we're at a time to not let a heartbreaking crisis go to waste, if you will. Dana, from where you sit, do you think that as a result of the current conversation we're having on race and fairness, that we're going to see real changes being made? Or are you concerned that while people say the proper things in the moment, that a year from now or two years from now, we may end up being in the same place where we were before the killing of George Floyd? Thanks for that question, Les. I think it's a really important one. So even though many of us are colleagues from the Hill, i.e. the political side of governance, I'm a policy person. I like to think about what you can do to actually affect people's lives. What is so unique um, about this moment is we are in a societal debate where different communities who don't necessarily consider the narratives of other communities, other individuals, people who were raised without certain advantages, um, access to privilege, et cetera, are willing to discuss what is privilege, what is not privilege, what is possible in the society, what is not possible in the society. I think the question of a year from now, will we still be in the same place is a little too short term. This is a generational challenge. But hopefully where we won't be is that police departments will still be taking the same sort of actions, that protesters will not be on the streets because they feel that their leaders are not listening to them. So here's the thing about this moment. What is remarkable about the United States right now is that we do not have a leader in the White House who is saying to Americans, I hear you, and we are going to look at policies at the federal level, the state level, the local level and the community level to figure out how we can change a system that disadvantages Black Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, etc. We also don't have a leader who's willing to engage in a narrative about how America is not fair and how you can be judged on the basis of your race, etc. So what's so remarkable about this moment in time is that civil society is taking the lead in this country that Americans are forming their own organizations, that people who can donate are donating to organizations to take actions to help other people, and that Americans are even supporting each other in protests, etc. The next step is not only to continue encouraging conversations, encouraging talking to our children, engaging at that community level, but actually having those debates in Congress and having those discussions in the state legislatures with governors, et cetera, about how do we change the structural impediments to a more unified society where everyone has opportunities regardless of your race, your socioeconomic background, et cetera. So those are the points I wanted to make. I think we are already demonstrating to the world that just because we don't have a leader who's willing to engage on that national healing level, that civil society is taking the lead. And we need to be looking at what's happening at the community level, what's happening at the municipal level, 
And we're already seeing a lot of states take certain actions and have debates about what they need to do in their own communities absent the leadership in in Washington, D.C. So I want to read something written by an African-American woman I worked with on the Hill a long time ago. She's been retired for several years. She had a very successful career, did a lot of interesting work on foreign policy and global health issues. She put this on Facebook, and here's a small part of it. At this point in my life, my hope is limited by the urgency of time. I know I will not see the America I was promised. But my hope, based in racial pragmatism and American idealism, is a legacy of clear-eyed optimism I will pass on to keep future generations of my family and my community striving until we get there. So kind of pivot off what Dana said, Jamil or Harry, do you want to reflect a little bit about how we as a country, when we really do have someone in the White House who appears to not have any ability at all to try to bring us together and maybe elevate our response on his own, how we can do that at the local level, in our families, in our communities? What are your thoughts about how we can advance beyond where we've been? Yeah, you know, Les, I think one of the interesting things that I realized, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out how to have the conversation with my son when he was at his mom's house when this whole thing began. And I tried calling him on the phone and had a two minute conversation with him. Megan, my wife, told me that was completely insufficient and inappropriate. So when he got back to us the following week, we were trying to decide how to talk to him about it. And my friend Kendrick came over. Kendrick is African American. We went to law school. He went to business school at Chicago with me. I didn't go to business school. We went to law school together. And he was talking to me about how he talked to his kids about it. And what was interesting was, had I been left to my own brothers, I would have begun the conversation with slavery, right? And I would have started saying, you know, America's got this history of slavery and oppressing minorities, specifically Black Americans. And let me tell you the story from there forward. And Kendrick explained to me that when he was talking to his kids, you know, he put in the context of we all came from one human, right? We all came from Africa, right? We all may have gone different places, right? We may have all, you know, interdispersed around the world and looked different and may have evolved differently and appeared different physically. But we all came from one common ancestor and we're all the same from that beginning. And then along the way, people started treating other people differently. And some people treated other people as property, right? And bought and sold them and treated them as less than human. And I don't know if that was just being raised in the American education system. Kendrick was raised in the American education system too. You know, here in DC, I was raised in LA. But at least the way I was taught the story, it was almost like, and by the way, my family came from Tanzania, from actually the continent of Africa. My parents were born in Dar es Salaam, three generations there. So you'd think that somebody with my heritage would know the, the, the actual story here. But for some unknown reason, I seem to think the plight of Black Americans or this, the relationship between the races and all sort of started 200 years ago with slavery, and it didn't. And it's really important, I think, to put it in that context. The one other thing I would say sort of about the larger sort of situation we find ourselves in and this question of what we can do at a micro level, it's really simple. Each of us can take action now. When I was on the phone with Harold and Harry that one evening we were chatting before I wrote the statement, we, we uh, were sort of talking about the diversity of NSI and we sort of just, we went through the webpage, right? And it was, it was shocking to realize we actually had great female diversity. We've got a lot of women. Uh, we actually have a decent number of minorities. We're probably the only national think tank in the country run by a Muslim, right? A Republican at that, right? But we literally, and Harry, what was the number? I want to say it was the minorities were total, I think maybe 10%, right? That was bad enough. African-Americans think it was, was it two or three? It was, it was, I mean, of 150 people, it's an infinitesimally small number. And the fact is, that's not reflective of even the as-it-is low numbers in the national security community. So that was shocking to me and, and made me realize we have not done a good enough job at NSI alone, a minority-run organization, right, to identify 
minorities who are, who are capable and qualified, whose voices should be heard in this community. And we're going to, we are going to do that. And it's not about tokenism. It's not about counting numbers. It's about recognizing, you know what? My immediate circle of friends, besides Harry and, and Harold, when it comes to national security technology folks, is as broad as it needs to be. Let's go out and get those guys, that, those men and women, and get them here. I know they exist. It's my fault they're not here. Yeah, just jumping in. And you're right. We have work to do. And uh, it takes me back. So, so Jamal, as you know, after I, I had a brief stint on the Hill, uh, working for the late, great Senator Ted Stevens, great American, and definitely steeped in national security from personal experience and service uh, as an aviator. And Jamil and I came when I was at Google and uh, the attacks out of China, the cyber attacks. And then you were at the Hipsy, I think, at that time. And, you know, we came in contact. A fond memory. But then you could look around the room and you could look around, uh, you know, not enough uh, on both sides of the aisle. We need more diversity there in those roles, uh, for sure. And I mentioned General Milley's statement. I have to say I was honored that his statement about uh, what's going on with this administration and the role and very amazing statement for him to make. He did that during, I was proud to say, National Defense University, where I teach, it was during the graduation speaking engagement that he had. And during that, he also said, we need to, as, as I mentioned, have more leaders who represent the nation. I would say now we have, for the first time, uh, one of the service chiefs. So the Air Force chief, General Brown, just came in for the first time. And of course, Colin Powell was the head person, you know, for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, but how long has that been now? And we haven't gone back. I have to say, I didn't realize that there had not yet been someone for one of the services. And then just go to Wikipedia. I like Wikipedia because they have the pictures of the different branches. And it's been a long time since Togo West was in there. And I think there was somebody who uh, played Clifford Alexander, Yale Law. You know, I went to Yale Law School after being in the SEAL teams. And uh, I think it was 19, in the 70s uh, for him to be one of the uh, secretaries, you know, and that, that's going back. But my point about when you look at the faces, nothing but white men, you know, broken up a little bit and too much time goes by, no women in these roles. So we absolutely, that statement, thanks, Les, for sharing that uh, statement that your friend uh, from the Hill made. It, it's absolutely something. And, and I have three daughters. My wife is Irish American. Uh, so my daughters, you know, we talk about the realities of things. You know, what did white supremacy mean? It meant that you had things put into the law. Uh, and so when we talk about these issues, I am happy for the future that they could have. But I also realize this is a jump ball. We have to work through this. And I know Dana's going to have something powerful to say on this as well. But I guess what I'm trying to say is this is very personal. We're having these discussions, but there's no denying that this has been a long time coming. This fault line goes deep. It is a very American thing. And I hope that we don't just let this fall away afterwards and realize that it's going to be hard for us to define our futures. This is unfinished business after Reconstruction, unfinished business after the riots in Tulsa. Juneteenth is coming up. You have Rosewood, and then you go into Jim Crow, and then we had the opportunity for more expansive inclusion of African-Americans and others around the 70s, the civil rights struggle. And guess what? Instead, we outsource jobs to China. Uh, we went other places for roles and we go, oh, you know, there's a way to go there, but we can talk about that later. I just want to say that, yes, we're having these conversations at a family level uh, as well as collectively. So I want to jump off of something Harry said about unfinished business, which is that our country, the framework of our country, the United States of America is unfinished business and that is okay. And what we have, I think, successively demonstrated to the world is the ability of our country to change and adapt. And we have a system that allows for that. 
We have a judicial branch that sets laws and interprets laws. We have a Congress that passes laws. We have an executive branch that implements policy, that shapes it, that sets the narrative, et cetera. And we have press, civil society, media, et cetera, and wide, wide space for religious institutions to be part of that debate, journalists to be part of that debate, schools, et cetera. And so again, I just, we are at a generational moment. All societies, all countries have fault lines and that is okay. But what, to me, the, the challenge is what happens to address those fault lines? What I think the post George Floyd, but really systemic police violence and the repeated murders of black men in this country have exposed this fault line. There's a tension on it. And again, what happens next will determine how we address the fault line. And then maybe someday there's going to be a new fault line that we address as well. So again, I think what is the challenge of the moment is not only to start talking to our children, to having awareness raising conversations in our communities, but it's also about civil society putting pressure on members of Congress to engage in a debate about exactly what kinds of laws would they like to set the next phase of what this is. And at some point, and you can see this, we, we talk about the General Milley statement, both talking about the idea that is America, but also apologizing for the way in which the military used. To me, that's about civil society. Because the President of the United States, as far as we know from media reports, organized for the military to use tear gas on peaceful protesters. And there was such an outcry and there was such pressure um, and disparagement against that, that the leaders, both the, the most senior civilian, the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff felt the need to put distance between themselves and, that, and apologize. And to me, that is the power of the United States and civil society. Just the fact that our military felt that they needed to distance themselves from the executive should send a signal about the ability of the United States of America to evolve and change and adapt within the institutional flexibility that our founding fathers gave. Dana, you're bringing back into my head when, you know, the White House ordered Lafayette Square cleared out so the president could do the photo op. They cleared out protesters, that peaceful protesters. And I was watching this live on the news for some reason uh, as I was riding my exercise bike doing my old man workout. But it was that exact spot where one of my kids went with some friends from high school to participate in the protest just 24 hours earlier. Even though I walk by there all the time myself and I know the area knowing that someone from my family could have easily been standing there when all that happened. And yes, no one got hurt, but still, it was hard not to feel like a direct personal connection on top of everything else to what was going on right there in the heart of our democracy. It was kind of amazing, Jamil. Well, I mean, Les, I think that's exactly the point, right? It's this issue of a direct personal connection, right? What I think we have all gotten away with forgetting, whether you're white or brown or otherwise, if you're not black, you don't really understand in this country right? What it's like to constantly be under this kind of pressure of what are the cops going to do next, right? It happens to other minorities too, but like, let's just call it out for what it is, right? Black people in this country live with a, live under a different system than the rest of us do. And it is not appropriate. And we're only now sort of figuring it out. You've heard about it over and over again, but for whatever reason, it took us till this moment to really, really get that piece right. And maybe we won't figure it out, but I'm, at least I'm finally hearing it. I'm, you know, starting to feel it. And that was kind of what that anger was. But I'll, I want to say a couple of things, though, about what Harry said. You know, Harry mentioned that, you know, we had the Jim Crow laws. And people like to say, you know, how long do white Americans have to pay for the sins of their slave forefathers? Let me be really clear. Slavery didn't end 200 years ago. It didn't even end at the end of the Civil War. OK, we had institutionalized racism in the laws of this country until the mid-1960s. And we've had racism in our society long after that, too. 
right? Whether enforced by cops or other people, right? And again, let me be clear. Not all cops are bad. Most cops are not bad. But there are bad cops. There are bad members of the military. There are people who are racist. And those people need to be drummed out, okay? But the idea that somehow, oh, we're holding people accountable for such a long period of time, it has been barely a hot minute since the laws of this country kept us separated by race. And that is an important thing. And the last thing I want to mention is, you know, Donald Trump today is tweeting out, you know, he's done more for black people in this country in four years than Joe Biden has done in 40 years. Let me tell you, whatever you think about the president's claims about economic success and the like, and I'm not sure how, how accurate they are, probably about as accurate as the rest of the things he says. But let's be real clear. When you coddle white supremacists and coddle racists, it doesn't matter what the hell else you've done, you are failing. When you fail to bring the country together in a time of crisis as he completely and utterly failed two weeks ago, you are failing. Nothing else you do matters. You're a failure. Harry, I wonder if we could ask your personal view on the incident at Lafayette Square and and the role of the military domestically in terms of the protests and maybe some of the looting and rioting that's going on. But in particular, the president called for using military force inside the United States. The Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs went with him on that celebrated walk to the church for the photo op. They later recanted and talked about how they had done that in error. They didn't realize what was happening. Do you think that as a result of all this, that, you know, the military, which is still in many measures, the most respected institution in the country is actually playing a moderating effect here and not at all what the president was envisioning when he talked about bringing them in to quell disorder and that kind of thing. What's your take on where the military ends up in this debate as of today? Yeah, thanks, Les. I'd like to go back to one of my biggest heroes, George Washington. And the example that he set from the beginning just to step down, the way that he respected the the Congress during the Revolutionary War, I mean, what he set in place literally changed the course of human history. They should never have gotten to the point where those military officials were there with the president, as has been acknowledged. So for me, I would say that that moderating effect that you uh, mentioned, it's one of the backbones of our nation because it's culture. And having carried a gun for many years before I showed up at Yale Law School, my perspective was different. But I swore an oath to the Constitution. That means that that system of relying on civilian rule is sacred to everyone. It should be to everyone, not only in the military, but the rest of the national security enterprise. And so I was very saddened uh, that we got to the precipice there. But thank goodness that those statements were made saying that, yes, there was a mistake there. So I feel strongly that you have to have that separation. But there's another side to it. The other side to it is I do not think that enough Americans are engaged. I'm continuously heartbroken by how few Americans choose to serve. And there's so many ways that you can serve. But I think we have to get that right and to realize that being a civilian and what it means in our representative democracy, uh, all of these issues are there. But to that specific point of Lafayette Square, um, no, the military should not have been there. Uh, And there is an approach, you know, how we look at our police forces, engagements of citizens. So one of the highest abilities that we have and it's protected is to be able to have recourse against our government. So again, starting off with, uh, you know, back to George Washington and, and through time up to today, the military plays a very special role in our system of government. And part of it is the restraint that's there. 
let's flex to our second topic, which is the international relations aspects of uh, the crisis we're going through. And Jamil, I'm going to quote something from the NSI statement. Our foreign adversaries, including Russia and China, are taking advantage of the ongoing situation by overtly and covertly creating chaos and division within our society. You drafted that with the help of some folks. What's your view? How much of this situation should we be laying on outside actors or how much of it is really the internal conversation we have to have? Yeah, you know, Les, I think there's sort of a almost like a fireplace construct here. The deep-seated issues in this country, our history of slavery, our history of racism, the institutionalized racism, and the situation that we've seen with police brutality is sort of a kindling log uh, that's been sitting in the fireplace for a while, uh, just waiting to be lit. And it's been lit a few times in the past 1992 riots, Rodney King in L.A., uh, where I grew up, and many times before that, uh, Harry mentioned Tulsa and the like before that. But there's this kindling sitting there. And a combination of what happened to George Floyd and COVID and everyone's sort of the situation we found ourselves in economically, the situation we found ourselves in socially, sort of lit that kindling, right? And then what you have is you have China and Russia walking in and pouring gasoline on that fire, pouring lighter fluid on that fire, right? Trying to make it burn hotter and brighter and more angry, right? And consume itself faster so that ultimately the society that is the tree from which that kindling comes, right, falls apart. And that is their goal, right? Let's be real clear about what our enemy's goal is. Our enemy's goal is for them to become leaders in this world. Russia will never reach there. They have pretensions to that. China may, very well may. And their goal is to displace us. And so the idea that from the spokesperson of the Chinese foreign ministry, these expressions of concern for, for African-Americans in our country, I mean, it's, it's, it's laughable given the way they treat Muslims in their country and, 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 and jail them in, in modern day gulags and, and prison camps. Um, the idea that they care at all about the plight of black Americans is laughable. Uh, but they found it as an opportunity to sort of drive a wedge into American society. And we know, because we've seen the actual ads on Facebook that the Russians ran during the 2016 elections, right, taking both sides of the Black Lives Matter debate, right? So we know what the Russians are doing. We know the Chinese are going to take a page from their book. They've done it in Taiwan. You can expect that in the lead up to this election and every day from here on out, the Russians, the Chinese, maybe even the Iranians and North Koreans are going to start getting in there because it's very easy to manipulate our population. And we're not doing a whole lot about it, not as a government, not as a community. And the companies out there that are trying to do some of this are not particularly effective. They need to do more, too, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or the like. They've got to do more. Uh, we're not doing enough. And this is a real problem. And so they are not the they are not responsible for this problem. We are responsible for this problem. They are gaslighting it. Dana, how do you see these other adversaries of ours, Russia, China, and perhaps Iran and others, how are they taking advantage of what we're going through inside our country right now? Not what they're trying to do, as, as Jamil says, to throw gasoline on the fire necessarily, but what are they doing in the world to advance their interests while we're focused on dealing with these very tough issues here at home. Well, you said it. They're advancing their interests in the in the in the vacuum that is the United States, which used to be present on the world stage, not only organizing through international institutions, fora, etc., but publicly on a mantle of advocating for freedom of protest, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, equal rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so what this is is an opportunity uh, for these countries to pursue their own interests. So for China, the pursuit of of a, of a rival global order to the U.S.-backed international system. What the Chinese are going to do is take advantage of the United States, who was already inwardly focused because of COVID-19. And almost all countries are inwardly focused, not only because of COVID-19, but because of the global economic crisis, 
which means countries are going to be less willing to cooperate together, less willing to share information. There's a lot of talk about bringing supply chains inside our own countries, which means, again, less cooperation across the board. In a system in which the debate in most democracies is inward looking about our own economic recovery, about our own public health crisis, about bringing supply chains home, keeping jobs here, et cetera, and not trusting to work with other governments, divorce of civil societies and links from each other, that's the best opportunity for the Chinese to advance their own vision for a global system that works for them, which is one that is not a rules-based order, which does not have international organizations working uh, to hold governments like China accountable, for example, for suppressing what are clearly early indications that they had a COVID-19 problem way before the rest of the world knew about it, not to work together to address conflicts, migration, refugees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Iran is another good example. Nothing about current policies have deterred the Iranians from their pursuits of global terrorism and pursuit of a nuclear weapon. And according to the last IAEA report, the Iranians are well under four months for breakout timelines for a nuclear weapon. And you know who's not really talking about that? Anybody in the world, because everybody's focused on the huge U.S.-China rift and competition and on their own recovery from COVID-19 and the economic crisis. So we're going to see again and again and again malign intentions, bad actors, et cetera, seize this space as governments are inwardly focused to do things that I think challenge U.S. national security interests, counterterrorism. We know that ISIS is resurging in Iraq and Syria as the Iraqi government is focused on its own global economic challenges as a result of the collapse in oil prices, plus its own COVID-19 problem. So we can talk about it when it comes to terrorism. We can talk about freedom of commerce and global shipping challenges because so many of the people that man ships all over are also suffering from COVID-19. We can talk about militaries and the effect of COVID-19 on militaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those who want to challenge United States leadership on the world stage, now is their opportunity. I agree with what was just said. And Dana, wow, you just made me think of on the issue of racial division, the Russians, where they were after 2016. And in fact, there were issues with Black Lives Matter and knowing that there were fault lines in Baltimore. Baltimore was picked specifically because of riots and, and they knew. And Jamil, to your point about putting you know more fire on gasoline that was already there and fuel, very important. And as far as China, absolutely. The Uyghurs, their oppression of an ethnic minority group as an example, it is so hypocritical, obviously, for them to do this, but they're going to take advantage of this situation. And the idea of two authoritarian governments uh, realizing that they can combine in the disinformation or the information space, that battlefield, which is becoming augmented with emerging technologies, like what you can do with artificial intelligence, and the fact that they can use our own tools of democracy, our free enterprise system, the genius of Silicon Valley, like Facebook, and point that at us. And a lot of times, people don't even realize that that's going on. So in addition to all the dangerous things of our world that we have facing us already, nuclear proliferation, you have on top of this our very capable allies using uh, weapons of information against us uh, to take advantage. And a house divided can't stand. And uh, we've got so many more capable adversaries coming against us to take advantage of this specific incident, but they know it goes deep. So I just want to respond to something Harry said about Black Lives Matter and Baltimore, because in 2016, there was an attempt by malign actors on the outside to tip the Black Lives Matter movement and advocate for violence. And the community of Black leaders in Baltimore actually went to these guys on Facebook and said, we don't know who you are. 
and we're not calling for violence. And I think that's a really important example, again, of the power of civil society, the power of community, and for looking at what civil society can do to reject the interference of outsiders. You know, this opens up another debate, which is about this moment, but a broader debate about social media tools like Facebook, like Twitter. Twitter just announced that it was taking down a bunch of uh, Twitter handles that were operating in an organized fashion, which suggests that it's outside sponsors and not actually organic to the debate and narrative here in this country. And there is a line between identifying malign actors from the outside attempting, like the Chinese or the Russians or, or Iranians, attempting to in further inflame our fault lines here and what's freedom of speech or freedom of expression. And that, again, is a debate that we need to be having in this country. And it's also one that we should be having in Congress who can have open hearings, who can pass legislation or at least introduce legislation and have debates about what are the responsibilities of organizations like Facebook, like Twitter, like Instagram, like TikTok, et cetera, in this space where we know the, our intelligence community has said that there are foreign actors attempting to inflame the fault lines in our country. Again, all societies and countries have fault lines. We are not going to erase any of our fault lines or all of our fault lines in a generation, but we do have institutions of resilience and systems of governance where we can adapt and change the realities of our time. And we have a system that is structurally not equal and is not a fair playing field. And we have ways of addressing that now. And at the same time, we need to be blocking out or combating foreign interference at, at this point of our own societal inward reflection. And I think, again, we do have leaders or we should be demanding of our leaders to frame that discussion and what is the legal responsibility of social media companies to combat foreign interference and foreign influence campaigns. All right, let's ask one last question on this topic. And I realize we could talk about these issues for a very long time, but we do have some constraints here. So let me ask one final question on this, and I'm going to mash up some stuff. There's protests going on in Hong Kong right now against Beijing, against the Chinese Communist Party's grasp of security issues and sovereignty from Hong Kong. People are protesting in the streets. They have been for months. They're carrying American flags. They're making a direct appeal to the principles of our country. At the same time, there are demonstrations in our own country. There are also demonstrations in Europe and elsewhere along the same lines of what Americans are protesting against for racial justice, for social social justice for equal treatment under the law. Is there an opportunity here with these, it's not even really civil society, it's people taking to the streets directly and demanding change that we, uh, maybe I'm putting it too crassly, can take advantage of. Is this an opportunity for the U.S. to advance its interests around the globe? Who wants to jump in first? I'll jump in first. And I would say, instead of take advantage, I think embrace. And absolutely, I think there is a way to look at this. And for Hong Kong, this goes back to realizing the threat to, this is not our brand because we're not a corporation, it's what we stand for. And so realizing that how we deal with this, how we show the world that yes, we are the America that flawed though we have been and correcting ourselves though we are, because this is, this is a journey to show them that we represent freedom, justice, and, and all of the highest ideals that everyone, every individual on the planet wants for themselves even if they can't speak out against their authoritarian government. And so for Hong Kong, for them to hold up American flags out of this crisis, uh, we can embrace the opportunity that's there and, and recognize that what we do in the next couple of days, next couple of weeks, and how we hold on to continuing the work in a clear-eyed way that doesn't avoid uncomfortable issues, because let's face it, white supremacy is uncomfortable. And that is our specific historical context, but realizing 
that nations around the world face the same challenges. So we embrace that challenge. Jamil. No, I think that's exactly right. Look, I think at the end of the day, this is all about both personal and collective responsibility. And it means taking a close look at the role that each of us has played in this process, uh, whether witting or unwitting, whether intentional or unintentional, whether active or passive. And, you know, when, when our statement said that the time to act is now, it didn't mean sort of, you know, act by just thinking about the problem and admiring it from a distance. It means actually act and take action. We're going to get a more diverse group of folks involved with NSI. We're going to call Russia and China out for what they're doing. We're going to partner with other organizations to figure out how, what we can do as individuals and as a group to address some of these root causes. And we're going to make an effort day in and day out to make this a priority uh, because it's gone untouched too long. Or it's gone ignored too long. And I mean ignored by me. You know? And that's what I realized. That's what I think made me angry when I was writing at 4 a.m. was that I got mad at myself. I got mad at the situation in our society. I got mad. But I got mad at myself. I got mad at myself that to, for not even thinking that it was, it was important to say something. We could avoid it and that we should avoid it. And that was wrong. And I'm glad that Harry and Harold and everyone else, Amory Zellamoyer and, and the rest of the crew, Sunil Yu, uh, that pushed me to do this, got me to do it because it allowed them to be uh, the better angels um, and, and allowed me to, to, to get better on my own. One observation I would make is that in the past year, we have seen protests in so many countries, right? Iraq, Lebanon, Hong Kong, Algeria, Sudan, etc. One big difference between the United States and Hong Kong is that the Chinese government is not elected and the elections in Hong Kong are not free, fair or representative. In fact, they're dominated by an authoritarian power from the outside who co-ops them to have the facade of elections. But they're not free and they're not fair. This country, if we successfully and effectively organize to highlight foreign interference, counter it, give people confidence in the institutions of our democracy so they can be confident that when they vote in November, it will be free, fair, unfettered with, that there's integrity and protection of the uh, systems for elections, etc. And we have leaders who are willing to follow the rule of law. We actually have the opportunity to demonstrate to the world the power of democracy and why most people should want to live in democracies, which again, does not mean that our societies are perfect, does not mean that our societies don't have fault lines, but it means that we can change and adapt uh, and hold our leaders accountable. And that's something that people in Hong Kong can't do. And frankly, it's not something that most governments in the Middle East or Africa in response to protests do. Those leaders don't say, hey, what can we do better to respond to the legitimate desires of our people? They're mostly concerned with how they can cling to power and the rest of their citizens and their welfare be damned. And frankly, a lot of those authoritarians thrive in unequal structures where there's systemic and structural disadvantages to keep other people down. And our country is actually having a debate about how we can level the playing field. And I just think that's fundamentally different from a lot of countries in the world. Harry, you get the last word. Dana, following on what you said, we have the chance to show that we will not be a house divided and that what America stands for as a beacon uh, for others around the world. Uh, and going back to Lincoln, you know, just a terrible, challenging time to say that government by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. But that takes hard work. It takes facing up uh, to where we are at this point, but also realizing that uh, considering China, you're right. These other uh, places, they're fighting against very powerful uh, situations. And for us to get our act together, so to speak, is important, of course, for ourselves, but realizing we can be uh, an inspiration, that we can join forces together as democracies once we work through these issues. And that's our superpower. And we have the, we have the opportunity through this tragedy to embrace that challenge and move forward. 
All right, let's shift to kind of our wrap-up round where we each mention something that we're following that's not really in the headlines. Uh, I'm following a story that was in the Post uh, two or three days ago about a former congressional staffer. I always like it when former congressional staffers are in the news, who had been the chief of staff of a member of the House from Florida. And after he left Congress, after he left his staff job, decided to go around bilking American companies for millions of dollars by pretending to be an undercover CIA agent who needed those companies to hire him so he could carry out his important mission. And evidently it worked for years before they caught up with him. And I think it's a, it's a terrific story. I assume there'll be a movie about it someday. So I am tracking that in 48 hours time, a new potentially powerful sanctions bill comes online. This Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act. Less than Jamil may remember it because it was debated in the halls of the Senate and the House of Representatives for at least four years, including being held up for a very long time on the Senate floor by Senator Rand Paul before ultimately gaining enough bipartisan support to be slipped into last year's National Defense Authorization Act. The president signs it into law 180 days later this Wednesday, June 17th. And markets in the Middle East are already responding. Currencies are further depreciating in Syria and Lebanon. People seem to be very concerned about the impact of Caesar sanctions on their ability to continue doing business with the war criminal in Damascus, Bashar al-Assad. It could be another escalation in the maximum pressure campaign on Iran. It may or may not impact Russia's decision to continue backing Assad in Damascus as military operations ramp up again. So very interesting because rather than just unilaterally imposed by the White House, this is actually a sanctions bill that has broad bipartisan support from both parties on Capitol Hill. Jamil. Well, in the story of uh, Paul Whelan, who's been convicted uh, of spying in Russia, an American former U.S. Marine who holds passports from multiple countries, accused of espionage, secret trial held, uh, no public evidence, and has been convicted and going to jail for 16 years. Obviously, a ridiculous situation, you know, and what's likely to amount to an international issue uh, with the United States, the president has indicated he's not happy. Well, at least Mike Pompeo, I should say, the Secretary of State, has indicated he's not happy and, and he tends to have sway with the president. Um, uh, this is obviously a big issue and the Russians don't seem to be getting the message. So, you know, we'll see what the president does here, but hopefully he'll uh, stand up for what's right and get our guy back. Harry? I'm tracking the issue of small drones and specifically a couple weeks back related to COVID, there was an uproar when some police departments around the world accepted a gift from a Chinese company uh, of DJI drones. And you can't make this up. They were going to use them and put them in American skies to do COVID contact tracing. Uh, from overhead. It, it reached the National Review. A lot of folks on the Hill lost their minds, members of Congress, as you can imagine, and they should have. But I testified on the issue of having a drone industrial base uh, in the Senate last year. This is a live issue. People like Senator Scott has legislation that hopefully it continues to move. A SEAL brother, brother of mine who's up on the Hill, Dan Crenshaw, also had legislation. So this goes to the issue of an important element of smart city technology for surveillance uh, where you could have a U.S. manufactured, not relying on China and the supply chains, and to realize that we can make these things and the rest of the world can buy them from us because we respect civil liberties. And it's better that we have these elements that can be used for commerce, but can also, yes, be used for law enforcement and eventually for warfare. So that issue of the need for a drone industrial base and smaller drones, less than 55 pounds, is something that I've been tracking in. Every now and then, as with the COVID tracing, it pops up in the headlines, but that's a long-term issue for me. All right, that's a wrap. 
As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and our producer and director, Grant Haver, for his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security. Fault lines.